Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, friends. Welcome, everybody who is joining us. My name is Eddie. I'm one of the campaign directors here with Valley Beit Midrash. So excited to have all of you join today's amazing um, event. Uh, I want to say and give a huge shout out uh, to our, our friends from Rodef Shalom for uh, sponsoring today's event. Uh, and I want to introduce our speaker today, uh, Jordan Bean, uh, Jordan B. Gorfinkel, uh, who is a veteran Batman editor working in graphic novels, film, TV. Uh, he created the number one best-selling Passover Haggadah uh, graphic novel and is launching the nonprofit Jewish Graphic Novel Initiative. His studio, Avalanche Comics Entertainment, produces corporate storytelling. He draws at uh, the Jewish Cartoon Weekly. He is a musician. He is pioneering, uh, pioneered uh, professional Jewish a cappella, and he travels um, the world to speak and give workshops spreading the message to make Judaism your superpower. Uh, I don't know if y'all know this, but I have an absolute love for comic books and comic books ties to Judaism is unequivocal. Um, and it, it is just phenomenal. So thank you so much, Jordan, for being here. And we're going to go ahead and jump right into this. Uh, this is going to be an interview with Jordan uh, because we're super excited uh, for this new graphic novel. I know that uh, a lot of uh, folks on this call already are sharing this excitement. So Jordan, what is the background the background on Koran Tanakh, uh, Esther's graphic novel? How did the project originate? Sure. First of all, thank you, everybody, for participating. So glad you can make it in the middle of your day. Uh, if you have a lunch or uh, a drink, feel free to uh, imbibe and to enjoy while we lunch and learn. And of course, just make sure that you brought enough for everybody. So if it looks good, I'm going to expect some, okay? My nickname is Gorf, which is the first four letters of my last name, Jordan B. Gorfinkel Gorf. And if you spell it backwards, of course, you get frog. So it's <laughs> Gorf. Frog, frog, gorf, and now you're never going to forget it. This is my friend Batfrog. And I am a Jewish cartoonist. And the reason why I am here with you today is because I have launched a line of Jewish graphic novels in partnership with Koren, the very Koren Jerusalem, the publisher that is. They are the gold standard of Jewish texts in the, at least in the Jewish world and probably beyond. Their reach knows no bounds. And it is such an honor to have learned from my own bar mitzvah with a Koren book many years ago. I won't say exactly how many. And now to come full circle and to be able to use that very text, both in Hebrew and English, to be able to adapt into a graphic novel series. And the latest book, of course, is the Koren Tanakh graphic novel, Esther. I'm sorry that because of the background, sometimes that fades out a little bit, but don't worry, I'll share my screen and everything will be clear. And I will be sharing with you today some of these insights. So the first question is, uh, Eddie, remind me of the first question. I just um, lost track. 
What's the background and how did this project originate? Uh, thank you. So the very first project was the Passover Haggadah graphic novel, which I saw Rabbi Green holding up before. If you would hold that up again, that would be terrific. Excellent. And the idea was simple. Uh, my background is that I am the former editor of Batman Comics, and uh, I uh, was raised and never really grew up. I'm like a Jewish Peter Pan, and I was raised uh, to love superheroes and the morality tales that are portrayed inside of comic books and graphic novels and superhero stories. Hi, AJ. And I thought, well, gosh, if there are more people out there like me who are visual learners, so the way that we engage with learning is less in a rote didactic way and more in a visualization way. So, for example, when uh, I am uh, studying for a test, I'm not learning the material with the words so much as I am picturing what the words mean. The uh, visions kind of dance in my mind. And then when I'm taking the exam, I'm recreating those images to put them back into words again. I think there are a lot of people who think in that way. And for them and for us, graphic novels are a marvelous way to be able to engage in classic texts. After all, these texts may be 2,000 or more years old, but they have stood the, st the, they have stood the test of time throughout uh, the ages and there ain't nothing broke about them. They're wonderful. All we need to do is take the modern media that we have at our fingertips that we enjoy engaging in entertainment so much with and apply them towards these books to bring out what is inherently wonderful about them already. And uh, that was the origin of this. So it started with the Passover Agadah graphic novel, which was a nonprofit project that I uh, raised money for and worked for with a wonderful team, including A.J. Frost, who's on with us right now. And... Um, uh, and after that, and partnering with the wonderful Koren publishers in Jerusalem on uh, marketing, sales, and distribution, they said, well, why don't we keep going and let's see if we can do more books of the Bible. So we naturally chose Esther. Esther, that's the first one. And uh, as we get into it, we will understand why. But I think the main reason is that unlike with the Passover Haggadah, for those who are familiar with it, it's, it's less of a storyline and more of a compendium of knowledge. It's like a Wikipedia page of all of Jewish knowledge and background and history combined with uh, a sumptuous feast and rituals. And for that project, I had to enforce a narrative on it to make it into a storyline. This project, for this next project, we thought, well, let's make it easier on ourselves and choose something that actually has a storyline. And this one is wonderful. It's a palace intrigue. It takes place in ancient Persia. It's got humor. It's got action. It's got suspense and, uh, and more. So it was just a logical next book to be able to do. And here we are talking about it upon its release. Amazing. And so like while we're having this conversation, I know that some of us are very passionate about graphic novels, but not many people may know what a graphic novel is. Uh, can you can you talk like and tell us what it is and like maybe who created that medium? Sure. Uh, in fact, if I were smart, I wonder if I've got something over here. Hang on one second. Um, I'm looking to see if I have an individual comic book over here that I can use as an example. And regrettably, I do not seem to have one at my fingertips here. Yes, I do. Hang on. Hang on. It's going to take a little digging here. Sorry that I didn't have this ready for you. Should have thought about this in advance. Okay. All right. So here we go. A comic book is usually an anthologized individual portion of a story, which 
<clears throat> excuse me, looks like this. It's stapled on the side. It's more magazine format. Whereas a graphic novel is a complete story, typically with a square binding, <clears throat> with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Now, individual comic books can have an entire story, but they're pretty short format. 20 pages, 30 pages, thereabouts. A graphic novel is typically more like 100 pages. You get the complete package in it. Also, there's a perception that a graphic novel sounds more highfalutin and mm -hmm. a comic book sounds a little more childish. And I think the graphic novel medium is more suited towards scholastic pursuits or intellectual pursuits because you can go more in depth than I think because it resembles a novel, it may be taken a little more seriously. And in the Jewish graphic novels that I create, I make sure that they are child friendly, but they're not childish. And we'll we'll get into more details about that. The graphic novel was created um, uh, by the brilliant graphic novelist. Well, the term he coined the, the term, so I don't know if I can call him a graphic novelist. It's in that kind of circular thinking. Uh, Will Eisner. And Will Eisner created in 1976, I believe it is, the very first graphic novel called A Contract with God. After all, if you're going to coin a phrase for a new medium that is going to be one of the most important media in mediums in, uh, in all of modern history, you might as well start with God. And it's just going on from there. Amazing. Thank you so much. So um, I know I'm, I personally have mine. I have uh, Malice and uh, some of the original X-Men that I keep uh, in, in my office uh, for some some points of joy. Right. Uh, Absolutely. With, with this with this being said, like, how is a graphic novel different than uh, a comic strip, per se, or a comic books or animation, per se? A comic strip, which we know mostly from newspapers, I think everybody here still remembers what a newspaper is, but just in case you don't know, it's when you take the internet, you print it out and you hand it to people. And newspaper comic strips were the most popular sort of entertainment in the early 1900s, and it persisted through probably the 1960s and 70s or so. That's a, a four-panel comic strip is, is the kind that we're most familiar with. In fact, I've got one of the ones that I just drew this week for my uh, comic strip. And by the way, if you're not already following me, you can tune into my adventures at Jewish Cartoon. Jewish Cartoon on Instagram and Facebook. Please follow me and uh, you'll be able to get more in-depth knowledge and we'll have a conversation together as the uh, Jewish Graphic Novel Initiative uh, continues and persists and, and is built. And um, a four-panel cartoon, a single-panel cartoon, uh, all of these things are much more short-form, whereas animation is when you go in the opposite direction and you build in mo the moving image and sound. A graphic novel is the perfect medium uh, that's, that's right in between the two. It's more elaborate and it's lengthier and therefore can go more in-depth than a comic strip, although comic strips can be collected into a trade paperback, which is sometimes confused with a graphic novel. And once you add sound to it, you're already in the world of animation, whereas, as you'll see with graphic novels, we don't have movement. We don't have 24 frames per second that the eye perceives as movement. Whereas uh, in, in animation, we do use storyboards in order to be able to plot that movement. In graphic novels, we actually stop at the storyboard phase. And uh, as you will see, we pick the strongest moments to depict a period of time that encompasses what in animation might be a number of seconds or a number of minutes.
Thank you. I, I think it's important for us to be able to distinguish those two. But now going back to what makes this really even more um, unique, what makes uh, this graphic novel Jewish? What are the similarities and different from and differences from other graphic novels? Yeah, in uh, the Passover Haggadah, we asked, uh, why is uh, this Haggadah different from all other Haggadot, which is a play on the four questions. Why is this night different from all other nights? <laughs> to me, a Jewish graphic novel, particularly one that is adapting from our sacred texts as source material, needs to accomplish a couple of things. Number one, it has to have the full, in fact, you know what? Uh, no, I don't have an example like that pulled up, so I'll just have to show it to you from here. It has to have the Hebrew, which side? This side over here, the Hebrew over here. And uh, in many times, I will also include the transliteration because I don't presume that everybody has a working knowledge of Hebrew, either reading or comprehension. And then on the facing pages, you have the translation word for word adapted into the sequential storytelling. And the idea is, once again, we want to use the original text unabridged in all of its glory and just bring out what's magisterial about it. So for me, that's what a graphic novel is in terms of sacred texts. Now, Jewish, excuse me, Jewish graphic novels are. Jewish graphic novels can also expand upon that quite a bit to include Jewish themes such as history and philosophy and, and other, uh, other works of scholarship. Uh, but the, uh, the focus that we have today is specifically on this sort of gra Jewish graphic novel. Thank you. Thank you. Um, how do you even like, like, where does this come from? Like, how do you even create a graphic novel? Like, what what would be like step one of, of creating a graphic novel? Step one of creating a graphic novel? Well, let me share screen over here and uh, we will check this out. I have a little presentation for you that I think will illuminate that. Step one in creating a graphic novel is really no different than creating any other kind of creative endeavor. It starts with the brainstorming and the conceptualizing and the designing. In the case of a Jewish graphic novel, we have several portions that come in here. One is we obviously have to do our scholarship and research to understand the original text. And if we're going to adapt it, a lot of times the Hebrew or the original uh, the original words are elliptical, a little difficult to understand. And they were written with a certain brevity that we are not accustomed to today. And in the case of uh, these Tanakh or Bibliographic novels, a big part of it is going to be, and I'm looking to see if I have a nice stack of intimidating books to show you, but I don't have it at my fingertips right now. The first step is going to be doing the research understanding the various different viewpoints of how the text is interpreted, interpreted, read and interpreted. So you have the surface meaning where you just have to understand on the basic on the basic level, well, what does this mean? And then when you go beyond it, in uh, the Jewish faith, we have uh, Meforashim, which are um, uh, commentators or commentaries. And then we have Agadah, which is, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? What's the translation of it? Uh, help me out here. Agadah is um, allegory. And then we also have 
uh, further interpretations that were done by many different generations of scholars over the course of many centuries. For example, you have the Talmud, where you have the uh, Chachamim, the uh, the class of of wise scholars from uh, roughly the beginning of the Common Era through about uh, 300 in the Common Era, thereabouts, who were less concerned with answers and more concerned with questions. They wanted to ensure that anybody who had a, any confusion, any questions about what something meant, could be armed with the tools to be able to figure it out. I think I touched on this before, uh, and if not, I'll, I'll say it again now. Uh, Judaism is not a top-down religion, it's a bottom-up religion. And what I mean by that is we don't have a pope, for example. Uh, sure, sure. God laid out the blueprint. You know, here are the Ten Commandments. Here are the uh, 613 uh, mitzvot or further commandments. But then we say uh, Torah is not minasha is not uh, in shamayim. Uh, our Jewish law is not meant to live in some ethereal space. It's supposed to be a practical um, experience for living to celebrate our and honor our Creator, but at the same time to give us the fullest. Uh, life existentially and spiritually. So in the Talmud, you have people arguing back and forth about all these various different topics. And it was important to reflect that kind of thinking in this research over here, because think about when you have, you know what, we're, we'll get into this when we when we show the, uh, uh, when we have our exercise later on towards the, uh, uh, the back half of this presentation. But bottom line, when you have a, a bunch of words and you have to turn them into visuals, well, how do you do that? And just as the rabbis turned over every word and every possible meaning of every single word, so too we have to turn it over, but instead of interpreting it in prose, we have to interpret it in visuals. And all that research comes into play in this brainstorming conceptualizing phase. Now with the design, we are dealing with historical events. So that means that we have to do some serious research on archeology span and history and topography. And we have to know what, what did people dress in? What skin color did they have? What body types did they have? Uh, when uh, they lived in a house, well, what were the houses made out of? And and uh, where were the doors? What was on the walls? Uh, what, what were the floors made out of? All these things that we take for granted when we watch a movie or when we read a, a comic book or a graphic novel, these are all the things we have to think about, but we have to be authentic and authoritative to the source material. And all of that takes weeks and months. I mean, I can give you an example of just one passage, for example, from Exodus that uh, the other day I was turning over my mind for literally hours to try to figure out this just doesn't seem to be to make sense. I have all kinds of storytelling issues with this passage, and I had to figure out how to solve them. And I did it in using this methodology. So let's go on from here. Next, we take all of this research uh, dump and we turn it into a script. And a script has two portions to it. It has the shot description, which is the description of what the artist should draw. And then it has the dialogue, the words that people speak. And you'll see what that looks like in a second. Then the artist does the pencils. This is the phase at which we do a rough sketch uh, to figure out the design of the page. 
How are we going to directly interpret the um, the script into visuals? Once we have that nailed down, and sometimes it goes through several drafts until we get it exactly right, we go on to inks. Inking is when we, it's not trace over, we add another layer. In per, it used to be in permanent ink marker. In fact, ink or marker, excuse me, ink brush or marker. You can see that the brush that I have here that I used in order to ink this artwork here. And in fact, if you go on my Instagram account when we're done, I will post uh, what the pe my pencils look like and what the inks afterwards look like. So you can see how I myself go through that process of my weekly Jewish cartoon. And it used to be that we inked over it because the chemical process, the photostat chemical process of um, of reproducing artwork was not sensitive, sensitive enough to pick up the pencils. So we need to make, make it dark black and white. Nowadays, it's more of an evolved art form where the inking actually brings a uh, wonderful uh, substance to the pencils that may not have been there before. Then we bring it to four color life with coloring. And back in the day, we used to use Dr. Martin dyes and to find all the different colors by their compositions in uh, CMYK uh, for the, this, the traditional four color printing press process. Now we have computers and we use Photoshop and other programs or iPads in order to be able to use all of the colors under the rainbow and all the special effects. But a good colorist is going to be focused on the storytelling first and foremost, not just put down a bunch of colors to make it uh, lavish, but tell the story in a, in a, excuse me, use the colors to tell a story that advances the clarity, just as we focused on the pencils bringing clarity to the storytelling in its panel layout, so too the color has to enhance that. After that, we have editing. And the editing process happens through all of these stages. And it's somebody like me who oversees the entire process and has to understand how all of these different segments work in order to be able to come out with something that is going to make sense to you. It's very easy to make a confusing comic strip. So when you read or a graphic novel page or what have you, if you read something and you know intuitively how to make sense out of it, it's because a good editor was going through it to ensure that everything was laid out correctly. Lettering, that's when we put all of the words, the word balloons, they're not bubbles, folks, they're word balloons, uh, and the caption boxes over the artwork. And then finally, we have post-production in which we release it and everybody celebrates, yay, we have a fantastic graphic novel. Yeah, no, phenomenal. I'm just admiring the the beauty of the illustrations. But moving closely more into Esther's story, um, many graphic novels uh, now feature superheroes. Um, in your opinion, why would Esther make a good graphic novel? Esther, to me, is the OG Wonder Woman. If you think mm -hmm. about her story, and spoiler alert, if you haven't uh, imbibed this graphic novel yet or celebrated Purim before, but you're going to want to definitely after, after learning all of this, think about her story. She is an orphan. She grew up uh, raised by an adoptive parent not being able to share her openly who she really was. So she had a secret identity. Then she was anointed into royalty. And when the time came for her to be the savior of her people, she had to decide, do I embrace my heroic identity, my heroic nature, or am I going to 
shirk this responsibility and uh, and and whatever happens happens, but it's not my problem. Well, as we know, superheroes step up, they save the day, they pull their shirt open, and there's the big S underneath or the big E underneath in the case of Esther, and uh, they they uh, they overcome whatever kinds of personal issues they may have in order to do good for the uh, to, to do the larger good. And that's the story of Esther. So it it makes for a perfect graphic novel. Plus, the story is an outlier in the Bible. It's really quite unusual because it's a dark comedy and it has lots of action. It has palace intrigue. It's very uh, Greek tragedy, Shakespeare kind of uh, uh uh, a kind of story uh, with with just everything you could want. So uh, why not turn it into a graphic novel? It makes a great graphic novel. Thank you, definitely. Um, now we read the Megillah on Purim, uh, which is a jubilant holiday filled with costumes, food, fun. Um, how do you reflect on that on the atmosphere of the book? Good question. Let's see if we can find an example. You know what? I think we can find an example even from this opening spread that you see right here. In fact, you know what? Let's go back one uh, or forward, forward one, forward one. Uh, there we go. Okay. This is a famous scene in the beginning of the text in which there is a bacchanalian a six-month-long party followed by a several hundred-day or, or close to a hundred-day uh, party that follows, in which the king is trying to solidify his power. He, the king Ahasuerus, uh, who's some people say is the king Xerxes, he is uh, recently uh, uh, risen to the throne, and he rules over the entire Persian kingdom, a sprawling kingdom of over a hundred disparate cultures. As you can understand, that's that's a, a tall order to be able to rule effectively, uh, and and not and and a guy like that is probably going to be afraid that uh, he's going to have some rebellion. He's going to have people who are actively testing his authority. So what does he do? He invites everybody to this huge party, all the governors and the leaders from all these different places, to party for six months straight and buy their loyalty. And the Megillah describes in great detail what this party looked like and that's part of the dark comedy in this uh, uh in this book that it's so specific about this outlandish lavish setting so it says for example there were swaths of fine fabric of precious white cotton and sky blue wool and they were caught up with cords of the finest linen and purple and draped over silver bars and columns of marble. And that's all happening above. I don't know if you can see my cursor. You can see my cursor. OK, fantastic. Yeah. So we had to draw all of this. So how, how do we do that? Where exactly is the fine fabric and what does precious white cotton and sky blue wool look like? Well, We've brought that to life over here with all of the tapestries that you see on the silver columns. And then the text goes on to get out of the sky and to get down to the ground where there are couches of gold and silver, which you see over here. We had to figure out, well, what do couches of gold and silver mean? I mean, are you literally sitting on a couch of gold? That does not sound very comfortable to me. So we had to figure out, you know, were there cushions on it or or how were they embroidered? And then there was a terrace paved with alabaster and marble. And look at the ground over here. 
We have done exactly that. We've given you the textiles. And finally, uh, Mother of Pearl and Black Onyx. And to have a little bit of fun, after all, this, these are uh, men, and they were all men at this particular party. There was a separate party for women apropos to that time period. The men were totally trashed. So my favorite part is if you look over here, I love this. Uh, there's a guy like Cirque du Soleil style kind of swinging from one of the tapestries over here. And you see guys merrily drinking in the background. <laughs> and when you go on to the next page, you see just what kind of fun they were having. Very humorous. One guy pouring drink into another guy's mouth. <laughs> and I think there's an example somewhere over here where, oh, yeah, this guy over here, he's so trashed that he's laying in the fountain and he could care less. And these guys over here are having fun by taking one person's hat and making fun. And these guys are having a sword fight in the background. I mean, this this is the comedy that we can bring out that's inherent in the story. And when you read the Megillah text, I'm not sure that you really perceive just how jubilant this uh, uh, this scene is. So we really wanted to bring that out. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the Megillah is a quote in quotations, you know, a dark comedy with a vibrant setting and colorful characters. Uh, how do you design the settings and the characters? Great. So let's go into that a little bit. Here is the women's party, which is much a much more respectful, staid affair. And let's take the, the design of a few characters over here. This is the King Ahasuerus. Now, we had to decide exactly what he looked like from the bottom up. So the first thing we did was we researched where did he come from to make sure that we get the skin tone right. Then we researched the different portrayals of him or descriptions of him, and there seemed to be two. One is that he's a shrewd player who plays the it plays dumb as it were but in fact he by doing that he's manipulating people or maybe he really is a buffoon he is a glutton who is a victim to his own worst impulses and because he has so much unchecked power he can indulge those impulses as he wished since we have a bad guy here who is shrewd and conniving and strategic in Haman or Haman, I thought that we needed a contrast to him. So I went with the more buffoonish uh, kind of portrayal. So we made him a very large man apropos to his appetites. And he wears a ridiculously tall crown that doesn't fit him very well. And you'll notice also he's wearing a lot of clothes, one on top of the other, that are rather mismatched. And the reason for that is I, I reasoned that a guy like this who rules 128 different uh, municipalities and cultures. And when we saw when we looked earlier in the background over here, we saw piles and piles of loot, including the menorah from the candelabra from the Jewish temple uh, that was looted and uh, the treasures were brought to uh to in into uh, the diaspora and into the king's treasury, which is is pretty um, uh, pretty shocking, and we even have a flashback scene over here that shows the menorah, the candelabra in the temple in its setting, according to descriptions in the Bible of how this would have looked. And you'll notice that the high priest is wearing a breastplate, 
And this breastplate, once again, is designed according to the research that we did on how it's described to make sure that it's authentic. Well, when you get back to Ahasuerus, look what he's wearing. He's wearing the breastplate. Personally, I find this really offensive. Every time I look at this drawing, it just makes me nauseated to think that this buffoon is wearing the, the, the breastplate of God. It's, it's, there's no other word for it. It's just insulting. But this is who this guy is. He's wearing an eagle crest over here from another, um, uh, from another culture. He's wearing a sash. He's wearing all, all this stuff because to a king like this, I reasoned, who has larger-than-life appetites, he probably thinks more is more. So he's putting on all these treasures to show people, look how great I am. Now, one of the original conceptions that I had that I admit is an anachronism, but uh, it was too delicious not to do to bring out kind of the Shakespeare humor of this, is that the text gives him a scepter. And on the scepter, I put a Janus head. The If you read the text, it says that anybody who needs to have an audience with the king unannounced can walk in, but they're they're putting their lives in their own hands. If he takes the scepter and points it at you, you're in. If he does not point the scepter at you, you're dead. And I thought, how fun would it be to have a Janus head on the top of it where if he points it at you, the smiley face comes up, you're in. But if he does not point at you, he just holds it up, the frowny face comes up, it's curtains for you, baby. Hmm. So that's how we design just one character over here. And when we go to Vashti, the queen, she had to have been something very special. We know from the text that she was very um, vivacious. She had a mind of her own. She was nobody's fool. And we made her somebody who was both beautiful and strong. And there's an interesting little aside here. You see this nose ring that she's wearing? That doesn't say in the text that she wore a nose ring per se. In fact, it doesn't say, the only time it ever talks about her, her clothes is when uh, the king requests that she come to uh, into the men's party and some interpretations say it should be without any clothes. In any case, we had to figure out, okay, what was she wearing? Um, because she has a skin tone and uh, and on paper at least is described very similarly to our hero, heroine Esther. And let me see if I can find a quick picture of Esther so you can see what I'm talking about. Here we go. Okay, so this is our hero. So black hair, big eyes, big smile. There are a lot of superficial similarities and I was afraid from a storytelling perspective that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the two characters. So I thought, okay, let me give her what we call in the business a funny hat, which means that some kind of uh, special accoutrement that would be specific to her. And the nose ring I thought was uh, very apropos, both because they probably had that kind of jewelry back then, but also because it signifies she's a chained woman. She, as much as she uh, ex expresses her own mind because that's her personality, in fact, she comes from, from real royalty. If you look at her background, I won't go into any more details here. This is a way of uh, helping her to stand out. And that's just a small example of how we design some of these characters. Now, you also asked about the setting. I'm going to get into that when we do our exercise. I'll talk about that later. Thank you. Um, and I, I, I'm loving the, the illustrations and it's pointing out such vibrant colors. But um, I know with the story of Esther, there's some like real mature subjects, you know, such as violence and uh, sexuality. How did you handle all of that? 
with subtlety, it, a good graphic novel is like a good Bugs Bunny cartoon or Simpsons cartoon or Pixar movie where uh, depending where you are uh, in your uh, developmental uh, maturity, you can read this for just the surface meaning or you can get amazing insights and depths by going even deeper. And what was important to us was that this would be child friendly, but not childish, which I may have said before. And therefore, when we had to deal with the issues of sexuality, I mean, after all, there's a harem, there's a, 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 a what's it called, a beauty uh, contest involving virgins. Um, we tried to do it in a way where for uh, for younger people, those aspects would go over their heads for more mature, older people. It would be something that if they wanted to see it, they could. In fact, I'm going to point out one example of that over here, which I quite love. Here is um, when they're narrating what happens to prepare the virgins for this uh, uh, for this beauty contest. Some people translate it as maidens, but really it is virgins. So they uh, they clothe them and they pamper them and they offer them all kinds of beauty regiments until the king calls for them. And then they are led into the palace and the king, shall we say, meets with them. And then the next morning they leave and they're not invited to go back unless the king specifically calls for them. Now, over here, the way we've done the storyline is we show the passage of time. The camera is, as we say, locked down. And in the first panel, you see that it's um, it's uh, sunset. And then you see nighttime. And then you see morning. And then you see later morning. And from a child's perspective, this would simply be she goes in, she comes out, and that's that. From an adult perspective, you can see that it is the very first biblical walk of shame. And I won't go into any more than that. Since we're we're talking about like the beauty of the illustrations here, it's important for us to talk about the artists, the illustrators. Um, and in this case, uh, Yael Nathan uh, decided on the art style. Uh, is there any uh, other art styles that are on this uh, novel? Yes, we decided that we were going to go with something that was evocative of uh, Disney. And uh, the reason for that is because, once again, since this is a jubilant holiday that is celebrated by kids and has all the accoutrement of a party, it's only natural that parents would presume that this book would be for kids. It's not. It's child appropriate, but it's not childish. Uh, nevertheless, we felt that it was important for it to be uh, designed for a, the most universal possible audience. And this is a beloved art style, and uh, it it its simplicity belies the sophistication of the storytelling. And she designed uh, Esther with very big eyes because the eyes are the window to the soul. And mm -hmm. Esther is described as having incredible beauty, but also incredible grace. That when she walked into a room, everybody instantly fell in love with her. How do you depict that? How do you create a drawing of a woman who is the most beautiful woman in the room inside and out? And uh, I'm not going to spoil it for you. I want you to pick up the book and check it out. But particularly when she gets introduced to the beauty contest, we had a very specific way of differentiating her from all of the other uh, beauties from the 128 municipalities that uh, that took place in this queen choosing contest. Uh, Persian idol, you might call it. 
So now, uh, can you give us an example on how the page can work on one on more than just one level? Yeah, and in fact, that is going to dovetail with the question that you the second part of the question that you asked before that I did not address, which is, do we ever change art styles? And the answer is yes, we do. Check this out. This is the minister Mimu Khan, who is giving the king uh, his thoughts on why he's going to have to be tough with the women in the um, in the empire. And he says, conjecturing, if you don't, they're going to walk all over you. And every man is going to be uh, under the thumb of their wife. And this is part of the dark comedy of this thing, that the men here, they don't have any respect for women. They clearly don't have any understanding of women and the value of women. And you just have to laugh at them. So since this was all conjecture on the part of this character, I thought, well, why don't we change art styles to show what he's thinking? So he's thinking about the wife, Vashti, the king's wife, and how she's laughing at the men, and then how they are lording over the men. And then you come out of the flashback and you get back to the regular style again. So anytime there is conjecture within the story, we change art styles in this way. And sometimes this was an idea that was developed by one of our advisors, uh, Dr. Moshe Cohen, who loves uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and he loves um, uh, Game of Thrones and uh, 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 Tolkien and all that. And he said, why don't you do a fantasy style map? And anytime we need to understand the geography of where we are in the story, you'll do it in that style. And we thought that's just wonderful. So we change styles in this way also. And so you can see a graphic novel is just so imaginative. It's such a wonderful way to expand how you can tell the story. I'm just so captivated by all of this. Thank you so much. And finally, um, what's next for you? Well, what's next for us first is I want to go through a um, an exercise where we can walk through together how this all comes about. So we've seen, hang on, let me find the right, there we go. Okay, let's see if this is going to behave for us. Great. So we've seen all the different components that go into telling a graphic novel story, particularly one that is um, adapting uh, biblical source material. So I thought, wouldn't it be fun to take two passages from here and show in real time how we break it down and hopefully also get the participation of everybody who's been listening to me uh, so politely for the last 45 minutes or so, get their participation in doing the process and doing what I do. So if we wouldn't mind, I don't know exactly how to do this. If somebody can, I, I can't see everybody. So whoever is the uh, the co-host with me, uh, if somebody can wave and um, uh, and volunteer to uh, be my subject to read the English over here and then walk through it with me. That would be great. So you'd un you would unmute and uh, uh, and be my participant. Eddie or Alex, if you see somebody who fits the bill, let me know. I see uh, Rabbi Green raised his hand. Sure, I'd be delighted to. Great, thank you. Um, I would pin you so I could see you. Hang on one second. Let me find you. There you go. Okay, great. All right. So if you wouldn't mind. Read the bottom in English, since I think that's the common language for all of us. As the virgins gathered in for a second time, Mordechai was sitting at the king's gate. 
Esther had not told of her birth or of her people, just as Mordechai had instructed her. For Esther still heeded Mordechai's words, just as she had it when she had lived under his care. Next step. Let's break this down. This needs to be one page of graphic novel sequential art. Can you please tell me which portions, actually just divide up this text into the portions that will be each panel. For example, as the virgins, is that one panel? As the virgins were gathered in for a second time, is that the first panel? My guess is as the virgins were gathered in for a second time would be the first panel. Mordechai was sitting at the king's gate would be another. Uh, Esther had not told of her birth or her, her people just as Mordechai had instructed her. Uh, for Esther still heeded Mordechai's words just as she had. Okay, so instructed her, that would be one. And then for Esther still heeded Mordechai's words just as she had when she had lived under his care. So I guess there would be an image of virgins gathered. There would be an image of Mordechai sitting at the king's gate. Uh, a, a flashback of some kind to Mordechai instructing Esther, perhaps with a thought bubble or something about her not telling about the nature of her birth and her people. Um, And then uh, a flashback to uh, Esther being under Mordecai's care. Okay, so we have four panels there. Let's see, and that's a perfectly valid way of doing it. Let's see. Okay. I'm just thinking, the more I, I, I read verse 20, you know, Mordecai instructed her while they lived under her care. So that could also be, it could be three panels potentially, I think too, or like a broader one at the bottom that contains that. So perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Yes. And in fact, the process that you're undergoing is exactly the process that I undergo and keep undergoing at, when I'm working with the artist. So the next thing I will do is I will go to, there we go. I will write a script out. And indeed, I did it as, I wrote it as five panels. And you had four or five panels, so I think we're pretty simpatico. But a funny thing happened along the way. And you can see here, as we were talking about before, this is what a script looks like. We call out each panel. We describe the location. We have a shot description. And then we have how the words are going to be applied on the page. But a funny thing happened along the way to actually drawing this out. And we began to realize that there was more detail that we needed to tease out. The first mm. thing is, look over here. Uh, Rabbi Green had, as the virgins were gathered in for a second time, as one panel. He did. I started to ask a question, though. Wait a minute. The virgins are being gathered in for a second time? Meaning there's a second beauty contest? That doesn't make much logistical sense to me. We just had a beauty contest. A new chi- a new queen was chosen. Esther has been anointed. And we don't have need for any more virgins. Why are they being gathered in again? Hmm. Well, I felt that that deserved uh, a panel of its own to try to solve that problem. And you'll see that the artist also had her own challenges. Check this out. This is the resulting spread. And the objective of our analysis of the final art is to be authoritative and, of course, entertaining. So it has to be beautiful as well as insightful. Let's take a look at the panels. We have panel one. Let's see if I can I go back. Yay, it's actually working for me. <laughs> we have the exterior of the women's quarter area. And Esther is overlooking the virgins being gathered in. Now, over here... 
we have panel two in which the dialogue says for a second time. And I actually added mm. that emphasis with the question mark and the explanation point. And I, now the rule of thumb is I can only use the actual text. I can't add anything. I can't take anything away. So if I'm trying to bring some kind of interpretation to the page, I need to do it using the conventions of a comic book. In this case, a thought balloon, sometimes called a thought bubble, but technically it should be a thought balloon. And what mm. she's imagining in her head is Queen Vashti being deposed. And in fact, this is picked up from a previous page where she was deposed and carted out unceremoniously so that it could pave the way for Akash Feroz to find a new queen. And she's thinking to herself, you know, they're bringing in more virgins, just like I had been brought in not long ago. Gosh, I'm on thin ice here. The king mm. is sending me a message. And the message is... Don't get too comfortable because even you can be replaced. Panel number three. So the king, we're at the king's gate and we're introducing Mordechai sitting at said king's gate. Let's see how we do that. There, he, there we are. Nice establishing shot, pulling the camera way back. You see the king's gate. And what the artist did that Rab, not, neither Rabbi Green nor I anticipated, but I give her a lot of credit for this, was she starts moving the camera in. So uh, Mordechai was sitting. Where is he sitting? We had to also figure out the choreography of that at the King's Gate. Now, a few things are happening here. We're doing using foreshadowing, we're establishing, we're using all the conventions of, of, of classical storytelling in order to give you much more than you would have expected. Now, you can read this and just enjoy it, but I'm going to give you the insights that the, the more mature mm -hmm. readers are going to get depths from. So where was Mordechai sitting? Well, he was sitting at the King's Gate. Why? Because, as we know from later in the story, he was basically spying for the king. If, if anything untoward was being planned, he untoward was being planned, he would want to know what it is and be able to report it and protect the king because he was, after all, one of the king's ministers. And that's why he's wearing the minister's hat, just like we saw Mimuchan wearing before and all of the other, the other king's ministers, courtiers. Mm. Now, the way that he excused himself from sitting there all day by not raising suspicion is that he sat at a table and looked all kind of official. So mm. he would have papers in front of him and be, you know, stamping or signing off on papers. But what that was just a ruse. And what he was really doing was keeping an ear out. What was he keeping an ear out for? Well, in panel one, two, three, four, five, we show you. Big time and terrace. Exactly. These are the two. Uh, King's servants, guards, Big Don and Teresh, who very shortly in the story are going to foment rebellion, who are going to plan to poison the king and kill the king. We don't know who they are yet. As far as you know, in the story right now, these are just two guards and we're just showing you something interesting. So it's just not more architecture. But in fact, what we're doing is we're foreshadowing. We're showing that these guys were always around, that Mordechai was listening in on them. This was not a one-time affair, that this was an organic, um, uh, an organic occurrence that came about. Then we get to the next panel, which is exactly as Rabbi Green said. We want to show Esther... Uh, to establish who she is. And then we have a flashback panel in which we show her being raised. So well done, Rabbi Green. Well done, everybody else. There is the last part. Here is researching. 
Here is how we brought the city back to life and the people back to life using what we know about the settings. And uh, way earlier on, our dear moderator asked the question, how do you develop the settings and the characters? We talked about how we developed the characters. Now I'm going to show you how we developed the settings. Here on the right, we see the ruins of Persepolis. Persepolis is another Persian kingdom, and this is a palace at Persepolis. And we have these ruins to this day, and we know that Persepolis was a bigger and better follow-up to the palace at Shushan, also known as Susa. We don't have anything left of Susa. It's been raised to the ground, but we do have Persepolis. So we can understand the principles of archaeology and construction and textiles and everything else from this. And what you're seeing here is you see that there's a stairwell over there on the right-hand side. Well, we're seeing the back portion of the um, of the Persepolis Palace, and that is the women's quarters. So when we drew the women's quarters over here, we drew a balcony overlooking the um, uh, the stairs that would lead into the women's harem so that we have that kind of accuracy. Let's go on to the next one. Mordechai at the King's Gate. Well, here is a design of the King's Gate, and you can see an aerial view of this, how you walk in, there are pillars inside, you walk through, and then you walk across a bridge that gets you to the second King's Gate, which guards the actual palace grounds itself. And you see little nooks and crannies over here where people can, can work. We redesigned it a little bit to allow for Mordechai's desk to be over here. And we also took from the ruins of Persepolis these statues that we saw, these anthropomorphized uh, 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 horse guard type statues. They, in ancient Persia, they loved having animal designs to things. And you can only see the legs here, but if you get the entire book, which I hope you will, you will see that we actually drew these statues guarding the king's gate, just as you would see at Persepolis. And I told you before how he was sitting at the king's gate with the desk and all that, so we don't have to go over this again. But even the pillars, for example, are based on the way that we see the pillars uh, from the ruins of Persepolis. What about the guards? We didn't just invent Bidon and Teresh completely from thin air. This is a mosaic that exists to this day from ancient Persia. And you can see some of the similarities that we picked up on. They're carrying the spear. We drew the spear in the same way. The hat, we drew the hat the same way. They are not carrying this uh, uh, quiver on their back. We have other characters that do. Look at the designs, the fancy designs on the clothes. We gave them fancy designs on their clothes. Interestingly, no textiles um, have survived to this day. So we don't know what colors or patterns there were. We could use our imagination for that. We do know in the background that this blue is very authentic because we do have a recreation of the King's Gate from a ruin, which uses these precise colors. So as you can see, we're really going for authenticity here. And finally, architecture. Take a look at how all of the buildings are squared off. Anytime, I'm going to give you a, a little secret over here. Anytime you see a building with um, right angles in the architecture, you know that we did it right. Anytime you see arches, that actually comes from Arabic architecture from 11th century or 12th century, and that is absolutely anachronistic. It is not correct. 
but we took a little bit of political license because we wanted to make it uh, a more vibrant, exciting interior for the palace. But the uh, researchers that we consulted with at Bar Ilan University, we owe them a big apology because they begged us to change it. And we had to kind of stick with our original vision. And here you go. Here was all the research that we undertook in order to make this authentic. And to answer your final question, what is up for me next? I am building a nonprofit to be able to have a Jewish graphic novel initiative that does two things. Number one, it's going to be a foundation for all of these pursuits to uh, oversee uh, the, uh, the the Koren Bible uh, graphic novel series, but also other books and publications that we're very interested in taking on that I alluded to you uh, a little bit before, and also to be an incubator, a uh, school of visual learning, a Jewish school or a yeshiva of visual learning, so that people in the next generation who are interested in doing what I do can learn these skills from me can have access to projects to build their skills further, and then can have a place to go, which will have services and expertise to be able to incubate their own projects as well. And for all of this and more, if you want to follow me at Jewish Cartoon, and uh, you can go to jewishcartoon.com for more information. And I believe our time is up. So I want to be respectful of time. Anybody who needs to jump off, please feel free. Um, and uh, anybody who wants to ask questions, I'm happy to hang out for a few more minutes. Thank you once again for spending a little bit of your lunch hour with me. And thank you to whoever gave me that soup. Uh, it was delicious. I really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you so much. Friends, now we invite you to ask some questions. I know we're running a little bit over time, but I think we have enough time for uh, at least three questions. Thank you. Um, first, Kolha Kavod. And uh, thank you for doing what you're doing. It's amazing. Um, is your foundation just going to work with text-based um, uh, graphic ideas or will you support people doing memoir or fiction or um, you know, recreation of, of other stories? What, what's the deal on who you're going to be supporting? The latter. Gorf, can you hear me? I can, AJ. Uh, so I wanted to ask about um, how you depicted Haman and the sensitivities that you probably had to take with depicting this uh, diabolical villain of the Jewish people and, um, and how he's depicted in the final book. Typically... Haman, the villain of the piece, the antagonist, is a mustache-twirling villain. But my experience with, uh, not necessarily firsthand, thank God, but you know, the Jewish people over the last 2,000 years plus, our experience has been that evil is actually rather banal, and that's the most threatening kind of evil. So I wanted to have a different, uh, uh, a different sense of, or a different depiction of Haman. Furthermore, I think that even when you're doing text-based adaptations that are historical in nature, it is important to relate them to the uh, the current um, uh, to the current environment and make it relevant. In this story, we have a guy who is bent on committing genocide against the Jewish people, and therefore, I wanted him in some way to be immediately recognizable as the personification of that sort of evil as we know it and uh, have most recently experienced it. 
Here we go. So this is the famous scene of Haman on his horse. Mordechai refuses to bow down. And there we go. We have a nice view of Haman over here. And he has a particular kind of mustache. Uh, I don't probably have to explain more than that. AJ, was that a satisfying answer? <laughs> and and Gorfi chose not to make his ears or hat look like a cookie. Oh, yes, I did. Oh, you did? Can, can you show this again? And Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we tried to get in. There are certain expectations that people have. Um, and, if, for example, uh, you know, they expect the interior of the, um, oh, here it is, the interior of the palace to have that Arabic look. So we kind of, we kind of, we, we uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We kowtowed to it. That's not, not exactly the word, but, um, but there is an interpretation that the minister Mimu Khan that we referenced before is originally Haman in a different form. So you see over here that the minister, when he's first introduced, he is not wearing the same hat as the other courtiers. And it's very subtle, but he's wearing a turban that he has in his lap. And then after the king accedes to his evil plans, his evil advice, he puts on that hat, that triangular hat with the fruit filling on the top mm. so that he transforms into Haman, the guy that we boo and hiss at during the Megillah reading. And in by doing this, we could say to people, if you subscribe to the interpretation that Haman uh, is Mimuchan, then here's your proof. But if you feel that they're two different guys, well, they look completely different. So uh, you can say they're two different guys. But I think you'll see that this hat mm -hmm. uh, does look take on the shape of the uh, homentashen, the famous homentashen. Now, as for the specific look of Haman, it says in the Talmud that one opinion is that Ahasuerus, the king, looks like a lion and that Haman looks like a bear. So we gave the basic shape of his head to be like the Talmud's interpretation of a bear. And likewise, with the king, we gave him a look so that he has a feeling like he's a lion or a mm. lion cub. And, you know, lions are very beautiful to look at, but when they strike, they're deadly. And likewise, bears are very smart and very cunning. So we gave all these physical attributes to mirror their interior, their interiors. All righty, friends. Thank you so much to everybody who joined today's class. Special thank you to Jordan. And we say this with love, Gorf, who has been a friend to BBM and continues to bring so much joy to Judaism with his amazing illustrations and bringing such powerful stories to life. Everybody, thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate your time. Have an amazing day. Take care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember, that you can join our email list at valleybaitmadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmadrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.